Welcome to The Blind Side. News and information from a blindness perspective. Here's Jonathan Mosen. Nice to have you with us once again as we draw towards a conclusion of our election series. The election here in New Zealand is happening on the 23rd of September. And we've got another political interview today with Ria Bond from New Zealand First. We also intended to have a second shorter interview with the United Future leader, Peter Dunn. Now, for those who are following these podcasts from outside of New Zealand because you're just curious about how another country works, you may not be aware that we have had an extraordinary election campaign this time around. We've had three significant party leaders departing in the space of three weeks. First of all, it was the Labour Party, the largest party in Parliament other than the government, the governing National Party. Their leader, Andrew Little, resigned and is replaced by Jacinda Ardern, who has certainly been responsible for a significant turnaround in the polls for Labour. It's made it a race. And then we have the Greens leader, Materia Ture, and now it is United Future leader, Peter Dunn, who also happens to be my Member of Parliament. He resigned in a shock move on Monday after polls indicated that he would not retain his seat. The next day I was due to go and talk to him in Parliament, and obviously that interview has been called off. But we're looking forward to talking with Ria Bond. I should say that we're continuing to reach out to the office of Nikki Wagner, the Minister for Disability Issues, and so far we have not had any confirmation that she will appear on the podcast before the election, although you can go back into the archives because we did interview Nikki Wagner last year on disability issues. But next week we'll talk with Marama Fox, the co-leader of the Māori Party, and we'll also be talking next week about the process of voting when we speak to a representative from the Electoral Commission. And if you're outside of New Zealand, you may be interested in that podcast because I think it's fascinating to find out how blind people vote around the world and what accommodations are made. We have an interesting telephone-based system that requires human intervention, and we'll be talking about that extensively next week. First, though, a couple of Mosin Consulting notes for you because it's been a very busy time here and I want to make sure that you're fully up to speed with some of the things that we're doing. One of the things I've been asked to do since Mosin Consulting began all the way back in 2013 was to create a course on podcasting. How do you do what I'm doing now and put a podcast together and have it come up in your device of choice so you can listen to it? And what are some of the equipment that you need, the do's and don'ts? We've got a course, a series of webinars that covers this topic extensively. It was once said that there's a book inside all of us, and many people now feel the same way about podcasting. Podcasting has really revolutionized broadcasting because you don't need an antenna. You don't even need any particularly fancy equipment as long as you select inexpensive equipment of sufficient quality and you master a sound editor or two. It's a revolutionary thing that we can broadcast to a worldwide audience pretty much from a bedroom through podcasting. Well, if you've always thought that you'd like to do this, if you've ever thought that you would love to give podcasting a try, but you just don't have a clue about how to get started, then you'll want to have a look at this course. Perhaps there's a subject that you're passionate or knowledgeable about that you just want to share with the world. Are you a gifted orator who can capture people's attention with a monologue? Maybe you're interested in interviewing people either in the same room or across the world using internet technology. 
Unleash Your Inner Podcast is the name of this series of webinars, and it's a course that makes sense of every aspect of creating a successful podcast from a blindness perspective. It's not just a technical course. It's pretty easy to talk about all the technical stuff, but this is also a series that covers interviewing, presentation style, marketing your podcast so people know that it's there, and more. And of course, we go well into the technical side of it as well. If you have no experience with creating audio on any platform, you don't operate your own website and you have no audio equipment yet, then please don't feel at all daunted about taking this course. You'll complete the course with a thorough understanding of your next steps. In an eight-hour course, we obviously can't teach you how to use all of the sound editors that are available, but we can discuss the relative merits of a range of them and provide pointers to additional resources that will help you learn the ones that interest you. If you already create podcasts, I think you'll benefit from learning about new cutting-edge tools that can dramatically improve the sound and ease of production and post-production of your podcast. You'll also learn about the pros and cons of various podcast hosts and publicity and revenue options. Plus, you'll be very welcome, of course, to share your own knowledge if you've done some podcasting before in the Q&A section, because we can all learn from each other. In short, whether you've never opened a sound editor before and never plugged in a microphone to your computer or you're podcasting now, I'm confident that you'll come away from the course with additional information and techniques you can use. When you purchase the Unleash Your Inner Podcast webinar series, you'll gain access to our four live instructional sessions hosted using Zoom cloud meetings. They're two hours long. You can participate via your PC, your Mac, your iDevice or your Android device. And if you want, if you're on the move somewhere, you can even phone in. So it's really easy to participate in a whole bunch of ways. Classes will be held every Saturday in September at 3 p.m. U.S. Eastern Time. That equates to 8 p.m. in the U.K. And here where I am in New Zealand, bright and early on a Sunday morning at 7 a.m. Each two-hour webinar is divided roughly into 90 minutes of continuous instruction with 30 minutes at the end for questions and comments. So if you're the kind of person who prefers not to engage in discussion, you can leave the webinar after 90 minutes, although, of course, we encourage you to participate in the question and answer section. You gain access to a private email forum active for the duration of the course, and this serves two purposes. First, you paid for the webinar, so it's in our interests to make sure it delivers what you want. By participating in the email forum, you can help with the crowdsourcing of the instructional material. Let me know what you're particularly keen to hear about and I'll make a special effort to cover it during the webinars. I'll also be actively answering questions via that forum. And finally, you also get access to a VIP area of the Mosin Consulting website. And from here, you'll find links to resources that we mention in the course. And you can download each session in case you couldn't attend live or maybe you just want to keep it for future reference and hear it again. Unleash Your Inner Podcast comprises eight hours of quality webinar content and it's available for purchase right now for 80 US dollars. So that's only $10 for every hour of webinar. Plus you get the audio files to keep and you get that forum where you can ask additional questions. So if you would like to be part of Unleash Your Inner Podcast, now is the time to sign up and you can do that 
by going to mosen.org slash podcasting. That's mosen.org, M-O-S-E-N.org slash podcasting. You can pay with any major credit card or it's even easier to pay with PayPal. You'll get instant email confirmation, which also gives you information about that VIP area of the Mosin Consulting website. And while we're on Mosin Consulting things, iOS 11 without the I is pretty much ready. So when Apple is ready to release it, we are ready to release our book. If you're not familiar with this series, iOS without the I has been something we've done since the beginning of Mosin Consulting in 2013. And it's a series that focuses exclusively on what's new in the current version of iOS from a blindness perspective. So this is not a getting started guide for iPhone. It focuses specifically on each new version of iOS. And we don't just talk about what's new with VoiceOver. We take every new feature, even minute features that we can find in the new version of iOS and we explain their use and specifically their use with VoiceOver. As I record this, iOS 11 without the I is coming in at 102 pages, and there may be a few more pages added before the book is released to you. Now, in the past, with the iOS without the I series, we've made pre-orders available so that people can order ahead and know that just before they get to install the new version of iOS, they will have this book. That's become an increasingly flaky model, actually, because email providers are increasingly trying to clamp down on spam. And so when we send out a mass mailing, and I'm delighted to say we have thousands of people who buy the iOS without the iSeries, so it is a really mass mass mailing. And when we send it out, some email providers flag it as spam. And sometimes the email ends up in the junk folder of the recipient. Sometimes it doesn't get delivered at all, depending on the provider. And you don't want that when you're installing the new iOS. What you really want is the book to guide you through at that moment. That's half the beauty of ordering it. And so we're not taking pre-orders this year. To compensate for that, we'll release iOS 11 without the eye just a little bit earlier than we have done traditionally in the past with uh, other versions of this book. And you'll be able to order it and download it right away. That way you can be assured of having it on whatever device you want it on so you can look over what's new, know what to expect when you install the new version, and it'll be safe and sound and downloadable the moment you purchase it. If you would like more information on iOS 11 and what's covered in this book, coming in, as I say, now at about 102 pages and about 40,000 words, you can go to mosin.org slash iOS 11. That's mosin.org slash iOS 11. It's time to hear from this week's featured guest on the blind side. Time to continue our series on the New Zealand general election, which takes place on the 23rd of September. And Rhea Bond is New Zealand First's newest MP. She came into Parliament on the party list in 2015 after New Zealand First leader Winston Peters won the seat of Northland, therefore changing the proportionality of Parliament. I sat down with Rhea in her office at Parliament to talk about New Zealand First disability policy. So you have really stepped into the breach in a number of respects. What got you into politics in the first place? You know, what, what made you decide to give it all up and get involved with New Zealand first? I'll tell you the truth. <laughs> I actually um, grew up um, as a child inside of the foster care system, inside of um, government homes for children. And it was the, um, 
lifestyle that I grew up through that I became very frustrated with successive governments um, choosing for me what they thought was my safety um, area and, and things for me that weren't actually good for me at all and many other thousand of children in this country. And as I grew through school and into um, education, I wanted to have a career that was about helping people. And no matter how they felt on the inside, I wanted to know on the outside that I was successful in making them happy. So I um, became a hairdresser by trade. And then I moved into owning my own small business and hiring staff and training apprentices. And then I very quickly, um, I guess, smashed through the glass ceiling in Invercargill and became the um, Southland Association of Registered Hairdressers President. And then I succeeded up the line of succession very fast. Within a year, I became the New Zealand Vice President to the Hairdressing Association. And those uh, training wheels as Vice President were kicked off by the then President, Faye Harkma, and I became the New Zealand President. So I was actively involved in uh, governance and legislation. I campaigned against the then current, uh, the then Minister of Health, David Cunliffe, about the public health risk management plan that the government put together and my sector particularly had been left out in the cold and not consulted with and it was going to affect the many hundreds of salons in New Zealand. So I guess I went in batting on their behalf and um, I promised the Minister of Health, David Cunliffe, that I would see him back one day where I would be an MP in the House and that day happened in March, uh, 20, sorry, 28th of April um, 2015. I gave him a wee wave as I walked past. Uh, during the valedictory, I guess. Uh, yeah. Yeah, 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 I did. Um, well, when I was sworn in, I gave him a wee wink. I don't know if he right. noticed it or not. Then he realised that's that girl. <laughs> so, so, New Zealand First is a hard party to pin down, really, because it is on the centre of the spectrum. And I guess there are people from both sides of the political divide involved in New Zealand First. It sounds like you might consider yourself on the writer side of the spectrum. Is that a fair thing? Uh, no, I don't actually define myself whether I'm on the left of the spectrum or the right. Um, I think that um, what I could say quite honestly is that different policies affect us and how we react and um, and we as a team decide um, how we're going to deal with those certain policies. So I'm, um, I think, fundamentally about making sure that anything that I work with is uh, right on the right, when I say right, it's um, good for New Zealanders. Do you think that your background, having come through the foster system, having having really have had a kind of a rags to riches story in some ways, does that give you some empathy? Do you think for people with disabilities who often face challenges to to get recognised and pull themselves up and fulfil their potential? Absolutely, I think that because I do come from what I call the hard school or the knock of school of life, that it does give me a certain ability to determine very quickly um, how people that do not have, uh, I guess, an even pathway, how they are unfortunately mistreated or not thought of, and um, that's one of those special abilities that I actually, um, I feel quite fortunate enough to have, but yes, I I do um, empathy, um, have empathy for people with disabilities. Yes, if there's an invisible group of people in society, it tends to be disabled people, you don't find them in the media, you only have one of them in Parliament. Uh, that they're not they're not that visible really. What can be done about that? I was just um, I'm glad that you brought that up actually because where I live in in Invercargill, I very rarely see anyone with a disability out in the streets, and I I questioned why that was, and I realised that we have a lack of accessible housing for people with disabilities. We don't have enough houses that um, are currently on the stock within our stock that um, looks after um, certain people that with certain needs that have disabilities. We don't have actually a good transport system where those houses can just go past those, those um, people with disabilities um, and get them uh, out of their home into our community. 
and I spoke to uh, a panel, um, the um, the DPA actually, and brought this up and said that um, the more I work within the disability sector, the less I'm actually seeing people with disabilities, and I felt quite sad about that. I felt that um, in terms of um, children within our schools, for instance, with disabilities, that our schools are not geared up enough to actually help them, and that we have to have actually um, inclusive education for, for children with disabilities, and they need to be resourced properly. And that goes right through to universities, and that also goes right through to shopping malls, because I fundamentally believe that we have 1.1 million people with disabilities in our country, and it is an absolute shame and a disgrace that they do not have equal accessibility to my community, to your community, to everybody's community, and we need to fix that. Resourcing is the key, isn't it? Because I suppose at a philosophical level it is fine to say, look, everybody has the right to go to their local school, but resourcing that right is the key thing, especially, for example, for for blind kids, Mm -hmm. which is something I'm very familiar with. They need to be able to be taught how to read and write Braille, which is a format in which most teachers in the school system in this country are illiterate. And so if you're going to resource special education properly for blind kids, Mm -hmm. that involves significant resourcing in, in, for, in the form of special education teachers. Uh, it doesn't right. look like we've quite got that right at this point. No, we haven't, and that's a real shame. So what Tracy Martin, our education spokesperson, has actually done is she's actually provided um, an, an update to our education, and our um, feeling across our caucus is that New Zealand First does have common sense solutions for issues, and Tracy's inclusive education policy um, cuts fundamentally right to the heart of that very issue that you've just talked about. Uh, we believe that um, our children should all be set up to be successful within schools, and right now the current um, level of resourcing that they have it simply doesn't cut the mustard. So um, we're quite proud that our inclusive education policy will actually work towards actually rightening that wrong. So does that mean a specific commitment to resourcing more teachers, employing more teachers, training more teachers? Absolutely. Yeah. Um, especially with our high needs students, and that's just not happening now. And I know that the um, Education Select Committee went through um, looking at um, how they could support children with learning difficulties, and the Green Party and New Zealand First actually amended that and added to that to make sure that the um, committee, um, in no uncertain terms, was aware that New Zealand First is very committed to resourcing our teachers and our special needs teachers as well. You have a background in the voluntary sector and have been spokesperson for New Zealand First in that area for a wee while. And of course, the voluntary sector is pretty pivotal to the provision of disability services. I wonder whether you think that's sort of fair. It just seems to me that that a lot of disability organisations and Mm -hmm. services have evolved by accident, that some of these older organisations came to be at a time when philanthropic church-based organisations did a lot and then in the 1930s the welfare state came along but these organisations had already been established in some cases before then. I just wonder whether disabled people might be too reliant on voluntary organisations for what are core fundamental services. I understand your point there. Um, I can heart on, hand on my heart say that um, I think that people with disabilities have to also have independence and that's really important to them. Whether or not um, I believe or um, the point that you make, do they have they become too reliant on, on the community and voluntary sector? I, I'd like to switch it around and say to you that able-bodied people have actually um, are quite open and quite happy 
to help people with disabilities make sure that they are successful in their day-to-day -day lives and their day-to-day -day routine. I, um, I don't believe that the people with disabilities um, rely on our community and volunteer sector at all. I think actually that we, um, this is me speaking, that we don't do enough actually to ensure that there is an absolute equal opportunity of accessibility for people with disabilities. I think that um, they might find it hard, I know that I've dealt with constituents uh, that are deaf and blind and um, people that have other disabilities like um, dyslexia, that they feel that it's not easy actually for, for them to access support and help, that they still struggle day to day with um, doing something simply like going into WINS and asking for a, a review of their um, benefit entitlements and they um, are quite quite happy that they find the right advocate for them to go in, into WINS and fight on their behalf when they find it hard to articulate what it is that they require inside of that meeting. I think that the um, problem behind the community and volunteer sector is that their funding model for decades actually hasn't increased, that they've been capped and unable to fulfil completely what the needs are of our disability sector. And I think too that the, the actual lack of funding and, the, and the, the, I guess the struggle out there is really real for our community and volunteer sector and it's not a good model that we've currently got now. If anything, that model actually is a disadvantage to people with disabilities. How would you respond to those who say that the trouble with a lot of voluntary service provision is that you essentially make disabled people the recipients of charity for what should be services that are provided as of right and that when you That's start right. to look at reasons for the high unemployment rate, the low participation rate, the, the low inclusion, one of them is that for these voluntary organisations to get the funds that they need to provide the services that are so badly wanted, they sometimes have to resort to some pretty dodgy fundraising techniques that don't portray disabled people in the best light just so that they can compete with, say, starving kids in Africa and other worthy causes, that there are some services that just ought to be provided fully by government and not at the discretion of volunteers. I understand what you're saying. I, don't, I want to say that first, that this specifically to what you're asking me, is that this is a, a human rights matter. Um, I believe that um, the current um, situation that we find ourselves in, that we are relying on our community and volunteer sector and that it's not at the forefront of this government, is because this government lacks actually understanding of our not only our disability sector but also how our community and volunteer sector can go hand in hand. I want to share with you a story actually that I heard and was told to me in a panel about um, a young lady that wanted the right to be educated, that wanted the right to live a full life, to actually earn an income for herself. And I've met many other women and men just like her that find it an absolute struggle within the workplace when they've got a disability, that actually want to and can actively participate in our workforce to help grow our economy. I think that the disability sector is a sector that has actually unfortunately been um, looked over by this government because they have a huge workforce potential that could actually be out there in the workforce if we have the, the right model set up for them and currently we don't have that available here in New Zealand. So I've kind of shifted away from what you've, you've, um, the point that you just shared with me. Um, I think that it's, it's quite crucial that we all have a better understanding, that we take off our, our um, I guess, our, we take away the looking glass and actually provide um, accessible policy 
that is fit for purpose to ensure that our disabled sector can fundamentally participate in the workforce. So what would you like to see the government do that it's not doing at the moment? Of course, they've just completed the New Zealand Disability Strategy consultation process, mm-hmm. and as a result of that, employment is considered to be a high priority. What, what's not going on that should be going on? I think I will touch on the fact that what do I think the government should do? I'm going to suggest that New Zealand First will actually correct this with policy that we're actually developing right now. It's important, and I think it, it is really important that as a party or politicians that we personally, we've got to understand the value of a disabled person and what they can actually give to our country. And I think that if you don't understand that and cut to the chase, then you're just going to continue to develop policy that's actually going to structure up the um, disability sector to fail. So um, I don't believe the government actually is capable of um, setting up a Um, policy for disabled people um, that will set them up to be successful and if they did have the capability then for nine long years, nine long years, what have they been doing? I um, do um, want to refer back to the disability review that's um, been completed and I was actually just reading with the strategy um, some of the um, comments actually from participants that have been at the panels that have said that some of the review and some of the comments that have come out of there is actually they don't believe actually is completely right. That they believe that sometimes more able well, able people get together and do a review and then put their um, their best I guess their best um, knowledge to how to help with the disability sector, but they fundamentally don't get past go by actually having accessibility at the forefront, and I think that's important. What about the disability agencies themselves walking the talk? You may have seen there was a very interesting article a few weeks ago in the New Zealand Herald where they highlighted the views of a couple of people involved in the deaf sector Mm -hmm. where they said that the problem is that a lot of these organisations are not actually walking the talk themselves and employing people with with their own disability in Mm -hmm. any kind of senior management role. And I, I know firsthand, for example, that the Blind Foundation has far fewer blind senior managers now than they did 20 years ago. If these agencies aren't um, coming to the party, what hope is there for the rest of the country? Yeah, it's a tricky one because I don't like to act like a carrot and a stick (laughs) person, that's just not me. Um, I I did um, see that article and when I read it, I I frowned because I sat there and I understand where you're coming from. If we're not talking the talk and walking the walk, then how is it credible that um, people with disabilities, um, um, how is it credible that they, they, they can actually aim to achieve to be on governance boards and the likes of um, those positions? I don't want to um, specific, uh, specifically target any one agency. What I'm um, interested in is ensuring that um, they do support uh, the core services and objectives of that organisation to the end user, which is the person with a disability. I do think it's important that we don't rule out people that are quite capable of going into those roles. And we, um, I guess, if I can say so honestly, it would be despicable if the organisations that you've mentioned um, did not um, on purpose target to have the person with a disability into those roles, um, I, do, I did find that concerning. And that is something that I um, am, have written down, talk and discuss more 
with um, those um, people in those positions for those organisations to see if I can get a better understanding of why they're not endorsing people into those um, core roles. Because mm. so it just wouldn't be done, would it, for people in Māori organisations not to be in the majority, uh, if not entirely Māori, or for women's organisations yeah. to employ a bunch of, of men, and, and, and rightly so. Mm-hmm. Uh, and yet a lot of these agencies seem to not want to employ articulate people who have mm-hmm. the disability that they serve, I think in some cases because they're worried about troublemakers, and you're having able-bodied people who are doing a, quite a bit of patch protection and nobody mm. wants to speak up against that. Yes. And I wonder whether there might be a case to be made for some sort of um, sanction system that said, look, we will at least give priority to uh, organisations. It's like sort of whanau order, for example, or yeah, other uh, affirmative action plan where if there is a program that's produced by Māori for Māori, it's likely to get a more favourable um, funding appraisal than one that is that is not, because that's what self-determination is about. Mm-hmm. I wonder whether you think that that might be an approach to take to at least incentivise this by saying, look, we'll give priority to um, by the disabled for the disabled organisations. Yes, um, I, I totally understand your point that you're um, asking that. What I, what I did find and have found through uh, being fortunate to attend um, some of the disability panels uh, I've been speaking on is one of the questions I asked, and it was about this too, about opportunities for people with a disabled with a disability to get into the workforce, is in these key areas, where are they? Are they putting themselves forward? How can we help to change that um, barrier that they're facing right now? And I've walked away from some of these panels and given it a lot of hard thought, really reached inside of myself and thought, how can I, as a person, as a Member for Parliament for New Zealand First, how can I actually ensure that there is equality into the workforce with people with disabilities? And I'm actually really quite proud and I feel quite privileged to share this, is that I've actually going to be next week laying down some updated new policy for New Zealand First Caucus to consider that goes some way and actually a long way to ensuring that accessibility into the employment world is a fundamental uh, factor in making a difference when I ask my caucus to support my updated policy for people with disabilities. I've heard a story um, again throughout the panels um, of a gentleman that um, ain't high in his life to be to receive a qualification to earn his own money and I heard about the terrible um, incidents of when he could see the interviewer's face just masking over because he was in a wheelchair. He didn't put that in his uh, in his CV, and he explained how that made him feel. And I don't want that for people with disabilities. I don't want them to work, walk into a job interview and watch that mask close over with people that don't have a disability. And I think that um, it was. I feel privileged and humbled, and I'm hoping that the um, disability sector will also see that there's been a lot of hard put into this policy because I care. I want to make sure that people with disabilities get treated equally. All the legislation in the world can't change those attitudes, can it? No, I can't, but we've got to shift and challenge ourselves as individuals that we have to do what's right. We have to be actually... um, we have to we have to do the right thing. We have to educate. Education is key for non-disabled people. 
Um, you know, we've all been at uh, primary school where kids have been uh, making fun of other children with disabilities. Well, those children, we need to teach our children that that's not acceptable. And if we can't teach it from the home, how can we expect it to go out into our community and have a government that's able to legislate for disabled people if we're not putting a stop to this um, um, to the treatment of people with disabilities? And not only that, but actually, people with disabilities, in my mind, are actually an untapped workforce. So there's massive potential to get the people with disabilities actively involved within our workforce. In terms of human rights legislation, do you support the push that seems to be coming at the moment for a separation of disability from the current Human Rights Act and have some sort of accessibility plan for New Zealand? Ah, it's, a, it's a bit of a tricky one because it depends who you talk to. <laughs> Um, when you're talking about the human rights and the shift away and pulling it outside and separating it, they, um, it's, I guess it's new ground. Um, and I would have to, I'd have to know more, to be honest with you, about how that would look in the end and how that would be accessed and usable to the end users um, and to make sure that um, the fairness is, is completely inside that, uh, I guess, that shift so I'd have to, myself, um, take more advice on, on that, whether I would support it, to tell you quite honestly. Can I ask you about the participation of disabled people in leisure activities and, and, and yes. just, just being able to be a part of society, really? Um, one of the challenges that blind people have had over the years is getting access to television, and there is a mm-hmm. limited amount of audio description now. It seems like there's a double standard going on in the sense that if a public place wants to be a public place, they have to be physically accessible. You've got to make sure that a wheelchair user can get in there and write you so. But somehow it's considered that audio description, or for that matter closed captioning for the deaf, Mm -hmm. is not considered just a cost of doing business, that, that the media doesn't expect that that's just a part of the cost that they have to bear for the privilege of being a media organisation. Yes, yes. I totally understand where you're coming from in that um, respect. We have to, as politicians, as parties, we actually have to change that. Um, we have to change the, the mindset of people that this is an additional expense to business, um, that's an additional expense to things like websites and being able to, if you're blind, access a website. And I know that there's not a lot of that going on right now. In terms of the um, captions or the capped captions, um, I know um, firsthand um, how difficult it is for a blind person to um, not um, have um, access to um, braille uh, easy in our communities and I I want to help towards look at improving that in the future. What I I guess the other thing too is that um, I have to remember too when I'm speaking publicly and um, there's a deaf person in in the room that I need to have someone doing sign language and they're the little things that I myself have picked up on because I've over not considered it. And it's been a learning curve for me. And I think that we, we have a big job to do as a country. We've got a massive challenge ahead of us, but we need to do what's right here. We need to make sure that people with disabilities have full access, and that could be TV, radio. Um, I like the fact that cabs now have braille on the side of them. 
That's very interesting you bring that up because that has just become not the law. I know. It's an extraordinary business, isn't it? That after signing the UN Convention and all of this work and the disability strategy, Mm -hmm. that the Parliament has just passed a law to make New Zealand a less accessible place. It's shocking, isn't it? That's why I come back to the fact that if you don't understand people with disabilities, how can you make good policy to improve their lives? And that legislation, we opposed it. What do you think the answer is in terms of the the audio description and closed captioning? Would you would New Zealand First support additional government funding for that, or do you just consider that that's a cost of doing business in New Zealand that that, that businesses should do that? No, I think to tell you quite honestly, and this is um, without having had that frank discussion with my caucus when I um, put our updated um, disability policy there, is that that would be a discussion that we as a caucus would um, discuss specifically. I. I Personally, myself, I struggle with the fact that a normal service, what I call normal, that everyone gets, whether you've got a disability or not, um, that it's considered an extra in, uh, expense to the government. I'd like to see us, as I said, shift it the way that we're thinking and make sure that we have in place um, every area accessible for all New Zealanders with a disability or with a non-disability. Now, I know we've only got a few minutes left because I promised to keep you half an hour. So let me ask you a couple of things. First of all, the disparity that exists between Mm -hmm. somebody who has become disabled as a result of an accident and somebody who is congenitally disabled or medically disabled. The Woodhouse Commission said a very long time ago now Mm -hmm. that that should be addressed over time. And it would be a huge financial, social policy commitment and nothing really has been done, um, is New Zealand first of a mind to progress it or do you you think it's an issue? I do think that's an issue and as I've been out on the street talking with people that's been brought up quite a few times and um, we're actually um, going to be releasing um, some um, election um, um, statements uh, soon actually and part of that is the fact that that what was said was if it didn't change, if the situation didn't change within six years, then um, a commission for disability um, would be the way, for disabilities would be the way to go. And um, I can actually tell you that um, from discussions that I've had with Barbara, that is, the New Zealand First would support that. And finally, I just wanted to give you the opportunity to tell me anything else about how you think um, New Zealand First would be able to assist to mm-hmm. make New Zealand a better place for people with disabilities in New Zealand if people are considering who they should vote for. Okay. <laughs> okay, can I say that um, you know, we are a party that puts the needs and thoughts of New Zealanders first. We are a party that believe in equal opportunities. We want to make sure the policy that we have actually is fit for purpose for all New Zealanders. And part of that is actually recognising that we currently, at the moment, have 1.1 million people that don't have um, accessibility like I do. They don't get to go on a date like I do. They've got to have uh, two or three factors put in place first. They don't get to go to the movies like I do. They've got to figure out um, who's going to take them there, who's going to actually buy the ticket for them. And I find that, that personally for me, it's wrong. So I, as an MP, want to make sure that I work long-term towards improving that to make sure that people with disabilities are treated just like me because it's actually quite sad that I don't see 1.1 million people in my community or in this country because they're stuck at home, and that's simply not fair, and I want to help towards breaking those barriers. So New Zealand First is on the cross benches at the moment, as it were, but you might be in government after mm-hmm. the election, potentially. Who do you think would make the best Minister for Disability Issues? You've seen them all. <laughs> oh, of course I'm going to say myself. 
Fair enough. But it's probably the safest response, isn't it? <laughs> yes, that's right. <laughs> you can't blame a guy for trying. No, no, uh, good on you. I, I, I really appreciate you giving me some time. And, of course, people will be able to find out. Um, are, are you intending to put out a complete uh, disability policy on the website? Is that the plan? Yes, once it gets approved um, from caucus, then um, it'll go through um, the process of being put up on the website. Excellent. I really appreciate your time. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thanks for listening to The Blind Side. A production of Mosin Consulting. On the web at mosin.org.